to Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And today we are here with Olivia Ghosh-Swaby, who is a familiar face to both Ariel and myself, because she is also part of the neuroscience program, uh, just like Ariel and me. Uh, Olivia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi everyone, uh, my name is Olivia, as Nick so nicely introduced. Um, I am entering my second year of my PhD, so I'm super excited to, to really jump into kind of being an expert in what I'm studying in neuroscience. So that's kind of been um, something I've been coming to terms with as a grad student, because it's sometimes crazy to think, hey, I'm going to be considered an expert by the end of this. But um, I'm very excited uh, for what the future has. I've been at Western for many years. So this is second year of my PhD, like, seventh year here i'm losing track at this point so i'm originally from uh, mississauga ontario so close to the gta um and moving to london was always something that i didn't mind doing because i love being away from home um and having kind of my own space and doing my own thing and then um obviously dying diving into the science world and being invested in that early on during my undergrad career so i've been uh, a part of the western community for a while now and i'm super excited to continue that for a few more years Cool. So you've been, you've been, <laughs> you're quite a Western veteran. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, with your PhD now, uh, maybe can you tell us what your work is focused on? Yeah. So the main focus of my work is really trying to boost this idea of neuroplasticity. So finding ways that we can increase the number of connections in our brain so that we can really optimize how well our brain is functioning, especially in cases where age or poor diet specifically can actually impact our, our memory, our cognition and how, how well our brain works. So with boosting neuroplasticity, a spot of the brain that I love to look at is the hippocampus. And when we zoom in there, it's actually one of the few sites in the brain that has a neurogenesis, so this formation of new neurons in adulthood. So right now, as we say here, there might be a few new neurons forming in our brain. And not many of them integrate right away and become functional cells, but a handful do, and that can be very, very important for when we want to um, improve memory, for example. And then when I talk about boosting neuroplasticity, one of the major components is seeing how that is implicated in improving um, improving brain function after eating like crap, essentially. So um, a main component of combining this idea of neuroplasticity is looking at how we eat. Um, and when we look at Canada, 60% of adults are overweight or obese. Um, about one in three children are considered um, obese as well. So it's, there's clearly an issue with, with the diet in, in, Western, in the Western world, essentially. Um, and it becomes very important on ways to either eat better or at least uh, reduce the effects of these poor diets on overall health. And in this case, I'm looking at brain health and using those um, ideas of boosting neuroplasticity to fix that. Um, and I keep using this word boost, but it, it really means what is something that we can take that we do on a daily basis or is something that's readily accessible that can help improve um, how we how we think, how we process information, um, how well our memory works. So essentially some of those things are exercise. It's, it's talked about all the time for a reason because it actually does show to improve the brain and in this case, help increase neuroplasticity. And the second is um, 
a drug known as metformin, and it's actually a frontline diabetes therapy. But in this case, it's been shown to be pretty promising in, in terms of increasing the number of these new cells that we form in the brain in adulthood, um, but also overall health when it comes to eating poor diets. Um, so, so for example, reducing the amount of fat deposits in our liver, and that can also impact the brain, increasing sensitivity to insulin so that we are um, uptaking glucose into our cells and actually using those. So um, very important for, for overall health and brain health. Wow. I mean, that's a a lot to take in yeah. right there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cool, interesting topics to go by. Uh, maybe we can step back for one second and just tease apart what is neuroplasticity? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I briefly mentioned this, but it's kind of um, our ability to create more connections in the brain. Um, and that plasticity comes when we have changes in our brain environment that our brain is able to adapt. It's able to either create new connections, reformat previous connections, um, and that's very important for memory consolidation, so being able to keep memories intact as we get older um, and in other aspects such as that. So um, neuroplasticity is extremely important and it's, and it's even more prevalent, for example, when we're younger. Our brain is very plastic. Um, as adolescents um, and younger than that, it's always forming new connections, readapting to different environments, learning more information. So the ability for neurons to be able to, or these cells in our brain, be able to um, adjust and modify um, is a part of neuroplasticity. Why don't we go talk about the exercise part of your work for a bit? Because, you know, of course, a lot of us think of the physical, um, the physical disadvantages to eating like crap a lot obviously but what are the sort of mental or neuroscientific disadvantages that you can get so when we look at it from a diet aspect so poor diets when i'm when i say poor diet i mean things high in fat and high in sugar so again our world is driven by sugar especially in the food industry it's in our pops it's in our um processed foods it's just so accessible um it's becoming a bit more emphasized nowadays i i would say in terms of uh, social campaigns being like avoid sugars and here are some alternatives but when we look at how that impacts the brain um it's been associated with depression when you eat high fatty high sugary foods it's shown to actually uh, decrease or have deficits in mood and that can affect everyday activity um, and then when we look at it in terms of memory at least studies have shown and in, in the case of what I'm studying it actually shows um, decreases in how well we're able to remember for example very similar experiences and being able to keep those separate and being able to remember where you parked yesterday versus today stuff like that um, when it comes to to memory in terms of going back to the exercise point, um, exercise has a lot of positive attributes to it. So it's um, in the case of combating poor diet, it helps our body eliminate some of the inflammatory response that you get from really, really crappy foods. So when I say inflammatory response, I'm talking about all of a sudden you're eating like crap, your brain in, in this case, it's detecting a change in its environment, something that isn't healthy for it. And it starts to release these cells that actually help fight or release um, toxins in the brain. And that can um, 
can actually cause some damage. So when we look at um, exercise, it's very good at kind of clearing those toxins from the brain. It's great in terms of losing weight um, or at least maintaining a proper weight balance. And then it also helps with digestion and, and the gut and um, intestinal processes are all related back to the brain. Everything is impacted by each other. So um, when we look at exercise um, and when we talk about memory, we see that almost is very robust. So it's very clear that exercise is great at improving memory. So um, when I think about that and I think about diet, how can we use the two together to kind of um, combat some things that is really hard for people to avoid, such as these sugary and poor foods, especially in areas that have... Um, uh, poor access to food, so why not exercise instead? Um, so that's kind of kind of the thought there when it comes to both exercise and diet. You know, I I I feel like I've seen like not in like any scientific capacity, but I've I've seen people who like exercise enormously, then they like also can eat like pizza and junk food and whatever, and it like just like it burns it off because they're like I'm always at the gym and I'm always playing sports and I'm always doing a bunch of uh, physical activity stuff. And um, I've even, I think seen like um, certain like um, mountain climber people, like people who do a lot of hiking, like mm -hmm. long, hard hiking. They might even just cause it weighs less, they'll bring butter with them and that will be, they'll just eat the butter uh, because it's like a, a dense, really dense energy source. Um, so what I'm wondering is that if you're, let's say you're eating what you would define as a, as a, as a crappy diet, um, is it like, uh, you can just, you can continue to eat that crappy diet if you're just exercising a whole lot, or are you still going to be getting those bad effects on the brain that you're talking about with the bad diet if you're doing a lot of exercise? Honestly, that's a great question because what my studies so far have shown is that when you exercise, you can actually just reverse the effects of these <laughs> high dense, high fatty, high sugary diets. So um, it does kind of off balance each other. And that kind of tells you that you can be a healthy fat in a sense. You can work out and exercise, but also eat not the best. So um, what that comes down to is a few things. Again, when you're exercising a lot or working out a lot, you do need high caloric intake. And sometimes the best way to do that, and like you said, in the case of hiking or running, you have to have quick access to those calories and, and maybe a stick of butter is the way to go. But in general, when we talk about how we, um, um, how that benefits those who are very physically fit is that, yes, that actually gives them the energy they need to push themselves a bit further to exercise that um, muscle, uh, even further than they usually could just because they have the energy to do that. So again, it's a give or take process. So when we talk about sugars and having those sugars accessible, um, one thing that I, especially because I'm an athlete myself, is that we want to have quick access to sugars. So one way to do that is to eat fruits, to eat fruit juices packed in sugar. Um, but that's a great way to get the energy you need in that time. So again, when we start looking at where where the negatives are when it comes to the diet component is how often are you eating it? How prolonged? Are you eating these high fat, high sugary foods? Are you starting at a younger age? And is that off balance with things like exercise or high activity on a daily basis? And if it's not, that's when you're starting to see the problems of obesity or overweight um, and effects on the brain in this case. So especially in our lab, we see that in other settings, the same thing when it comes to diet. 
when that is not paired with exercise, but you're eating these poor diets at a younger age, that affects this plasticity in your brain. And in, and in the case, it causes more harm than good. So again, it's, it's, um, it's a, a balance, a tightrope. You're kind of balancing both. Um, but that's it. I don't know if you can get away with being a healthy fat. <laughs> it's a balance. Well, because, you know, whenever you read like weight loss things, they always say that 95% of it is um, your nutrition. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you're finding that the exercise can really um, sort of reverse the effects, at least on the brain. Exactly. So again, I'm looking at it from the lens of the brain. I do take other information about what happens to the body. Of, and in this case, I'm studying it in an animal model what actually happens in terms of metabolism in an animal. So when we look at it in that case, exercise isn't so good at completely causing weight loss when you're eating high fat, high sugary foods. So the animals still can maintain a decent weight, but not to the extent of if they weren't exercising at all. So yes, exercise does offset the two, but when we're talking about weight loss, that's when you need to start balancing both. You need to balance both the diet and you need to balance um, exercise because you need to be in a cal caloric deficit to see those changes physically. So I feel like, uh, you know, it's very intuitive. People get that like exercise, good. Uh, mm -hmm. Eating too much sugar and fat, bad. <laughs> like a lot of people might know this, just, uh, I don't know, absorb it through culture. <laughs> they don't know, they don't have the studies and the science to back it up. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about the actual animal work that you're doing to show fundamentally that this is true and, and tease apart the nuance? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, in terms of not looking at the brain, and I had mentioned this previously, but when we look at it in an animal model, in this case, mice, um, how we give a mice, a mouse high fat, high sugary foods, it's kind of giving them like little butter pellets in a sense. They get to nibble and eat that freely. Um, and essentially what, what we assess is just how does their weight change over time? In this case, I do it over like a, a five week period and it's pretty quick. These animals get, they love, they love this food. It's like, <laughs> honestly, when we look at how these diet studies are done, especially in mice, that you can look at it in a different lens and just see how they eat. And sometimes when they eat, you see that these high sugary, high, high fat foods can actually create addictive behaviors where they just want to keep eating, keep eating, and it becomes a part of them. And, um, and I haven't personally looked at how it changes when you change back the diet, but um, like to something more normal for a mouse. But when it's those high fat, high sugary foods, they just love it. Um, and what we see is that in the first week, it's like a jump. The weight increases because it's a food that they become more familiar with and they love the taste of. Um, and essentially they become very, very fat by the end of that week, almost double the weight of a normal mouse. And that stays pretty consistent over time. So when we incorporate things like exercise or for example, a drug intervention, that actually can drop. But sometimes the, the food and how much the animal actually eats, especially when it's also working out, they balance each other out and the animal just can't lose weight. But but yeah, so when we look at it in terms of um, how well they're eating and when they don't have those interve interventions present, they just can't do it. It's, it can be a combination of the fact they can't move because they're so overweight, or two, they just can't process that things are different in their environment. They can't remember what was once there, um, which is something that we look at in terms of memory. Um, and that just becomes difficult. So um, 
other metabolic measures besides just a change in weight, I can actually look at the amount of fat that they have at the end of um, a study. So we can actually take out the fat of the animal weight um, and white adipose tissue, which is usually formed around the abdomen, same as in humans, is a sign that an animal is overweight and obese, and that can have a lot of effects on uh, cardiovascular outcomes and cardiovascular health. Um, but that's not something I look at. But in this case, that's another example there. And then lastly, when we look at the liver, the liver is a great sign to see how things, how the body in general is affected in terms of metabolism. And in the case of diet, what we see is that their liver almost goes from the classic darker burgundy color to almost a pale pink white. And it's, it's quite astonishing. You can actually see like the little fat triglycerides they're like little balls or bubbles that kind of form in the liver in a very synchronous patterns. Kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies, but once you see it there, you know that they've been really affected by what they've been eating. So that's just an example of how we can easily see that diet alone affects, affects health and that exercise almost completely gets rid of those things. At least when we look at the liver and fat, but overall body weight can still sometimes increase. So, they, so you give these mice um, this like super tasty diet that they just can't get enough of and, and they double in weight and they're crazy heavy um and then they get these negative things like they, they can't do your memory tests that you test them with their their liver looks looks not good they've got all this buildup of uh fat on their abdomen and then when you give them exercise we exercise them as well you give them exercise and the diet simultaneously is that yes. right yeah, so they get to go and run on, run freely on a running wheel. So this is all voluntary for them. And surprisingly, diet doesn't stop them from running. They love to run as well. Um, but that does help improve, at least when we look at it in terms of their tissues and what's happening inside yeah. their body. It does reverse what we see when I talk about that pale pink liver. It goes to back to kind of its normal color, which is at least for knowing things are working a bit better internally. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested. All the mice... They can't, they can't hold back. Hey, like every single mouse, you give them that food and yeah. predictably they always eat too much. Yeah. They just, they love it. And I, um, in terms of how much they consume, we can actually, I wish there was a better way to measure it. Cause uh, one way to do that is to separate each mouse individually, but we want to keep our mice together because they're always happier when they're with friends. Yeah, yeah. But when we do, um, look at overall how much a cage of mice eats they're eating anywhere from 20 to 30 grams of sorry more closer to 20 grams of that diet versus when it's a regular um chow is what we say for mice in terms of their food they're they're eating maybe half of that how far along are you in this experiment like have you started it or yeah so initially my intention was to complete a master's, but I, I really loved what I was doing and I, I moved over into a PhD just a, a few months ago, actually. So what that meant is at the time I was actually working my butt off to get the data that I wanted, um, especially with the circumstances too. I was, I was in there like 24 seven. Um, and I managed to get through uh, most of my exercise cohort. So I can fairly confidently say that these animals are actually showing really good improvements in their memory. With, in terms of the, the metformin or that drug aspect, I'm halfway through that, so I still have a bit more to go. And then the real question comes to what, when we zoom in on the brain, what's really happening at the cellular level? And that's the next question I'm asking. So, um, you, you know, at some point you also mentioned like um, what age they are and like when this is happening. Are these, are these like young mice or 
does it matter or, or do you want to look at older mice? In the case of um, the mice that I'm looking at, I'm looking at young adults. So this is kind of past that stage where the animals are already kind of at a younger age, they already have the benefit, at least as an adolescent mouse, of having more plasticity in the brain. So I'm just getting past that. So what happens when we're young adults and we're eating um, high sugary, high fatty foods? How can we isolate that and be able to reverse it with exercise or drug treatment? Um, in terms of older mice, that's a great question. I actually kind of want to look at it in terms of disease models. So when we're looking at both combining diet and disease models, because again, diet just kind of carries with us and it's not something easily changed because it becomes a part of habit. Um, mm -hmm. So when we start looking at it in disease models or older individuals, um, how does, does that exacerbate or make it even worse? Um, and can we reverse it the same way as we do with, with the treatments I've been looking at? Yeah, we feel like um, even if you have the best science in the world, you tell uh, a 19-year-old, like, buck up, you got to, like, exercise and, and, and you got to work on your on your diet. And they're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, they're young. We still have a fast metabolism. Um, I'm not looking at mice technically that age. So, uh, unfortunately, can't can't tell you if if adolescents can get away with it necessarily the same. But I, I can say that from research in our lab, it looks like um, there's more room to bounce back when you're younger. So after eating um, these high sugary foods, you can bounce back a bit better. What about that? Because you know, obviously, the best thing I'm sure would be to you know exercise and eat well at a young age and just do that your whole life. But obviously. The campaigns that have gone around for that information are not working. In fact, you know, as you know, obesity rates are rising. So, you know, if we come with these like alternative approaches to help with the brains, um, the effects of bad eating on the brain, for example, metformin, what are the potential like downfalls or side effects of that? Like, did, have you seen any negative um, responses to it? So in terms of metformin, it's actually a very well-tolerated drug. It's, it's literally the number one prescribed medication in those who are, who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is usually the results of some things like poor diet. So it's all kind of this connected loop in, in terms of what I'm trying to study and then adding in that aspect of the brain. How is the brain impacted by that? So when we look at metformin in the in a sense, um, sometimes there are adverse side effects, at least in humans. Um, so sometimes it's not well tolerated in the stomach. But in, in again, um, having talked previously to Ariel about this, sometimes you have changes to other um, measures of in the blood like cholesterol or or stuff like that so um again it needs to be monitored but it's it's one of those better drugs especially at a lower dosage it might actually show some better better effects um taken all the time and in my head i know i shouldn't be condoning or, or telling people that they can get away with not exercising but yeah. that's really an issue and do you want to adhere to something different or stick to something different maybe just popping a pill every day might be the best option for some people um, and might be more realistic for them to, to maintain it through life. And metformin has been talked about as a wonder drug in a sense, and it might be beneficial for a number of things. Um, and that's become kind of its focus. Is, is this an anti-aging drug? Is this a, a drug that'll help boost memory? Is this a drug that'll help with a number of different things related to the brain? Um, so yeah, that's, that's where it's kind of going in that direction of the, that, 
that drug, but um, it, it's interesting and there's always new research coming out all the time. So I'm, I'm kind of curious where it'll end up. So um, I know I know it's you just started you just started the PhD so you're gearing up and ready to like get going and like do the PhD work now but you know you sound it it just emanates from you that you're passionate about this that this is like this is not just a project that you're working on it's something that you really invested your your emotion into you care about this topic a lot so I'm wondering if you've taken into like thought about where you want to take this. Like, I mean, after you're, after you're done your PhD, do you want to continue to work on this same field or what are your ambitions? What, what do you, what do you want to do? That's a great question. So again, I, I, I really love talking about the things that I do. And sometimes I think that's my, one of my best attributes is just communicating and, and talking with people about some of the stuff I do. So, um, I, uh, in terms of aspirations at an academic level, I do hopefully want to be able to teach kind of these concepts to other people. So go into teaching and, and being a professor in that sense. But when it comes to the research side of things, I am definitely, definitely leaning towards how diet impacts the brain and kind of sticking in that avenue because I think it's so, so relevant um, and so important to, to everyone. And maybe stop looking at all the focus on the negative of these high fat, high sugar foods and start thinking of aspects of diet that are positive. Um, so, so more greeny foods and how can we incorporate that into things that we study and how can that be applied in, in, um, different models. So those are like in animal work, we can look at how does that affect a disease model, for example, of Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, how, how can we change that up? Um, and then another aspect is, of course, being able to take what I see in an animal and, hey, can I actually see that in a human in the same way? So can I see that in a human in the same way um, in terms of can we, can we maybe take um, an old patient population, um, see what their diet is like, and give them maybe um, a test of memory and how that impacts that alone, the diet that we know they have and their age, how does that impact their ability to, to be able to remember things or um, identify small changes in their environment? So, so that's kind of the, the avenue I'm leaning towards because um, I love the idea of bed or bench to bedside. So um, kind of incorporating both of those. Very cool. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just running pretty close to the end of the show here. So maybe can you tell people um where they can find you on the interwebs if they want to follow up uh, and see what you're up to yeah of course so um i go to especially because i'm learning more and more the ways of the twitter twitter verse is is what i've been seeing around um you're welcome to follow me at at oh gosh or oh gosh sw so it's o g o s h h s w so you're welcome to follow me on there it's just Olivia. Um, I talk about science. I talk about my life. Um, big advocate of especially some of the stuff that's going on in the world. So um, I love interacting and and kind of learning from people and hopefully they'll learn from me on, on social media. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Olivia, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure and I hope you had a good time on the show and we hope to hear the exciting things in your research going forward. Great, thank you. And I hope it keeps uh, going up from here and it stays exciting um, and hopefully I can share some more updates on where I am in the future. Awesome. Well, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. 
I've been your host, Nick, and my co-host today was Ariel, and we've been speaking to Olivia today. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM, and you can also find all previous episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, or Spotify. Select episodes have also been updated to our YouTube channel at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.